welcome to another edition of Expanding Mind. I'm your host, Eric Davis, continuing the conversations, endless conversations about the cultures of consciousness. I mean, we've been doing this thing for uh, seven years now. I mean, I feel like I should get an award, a gold star, a, a, a gold plaque. Uh, but I am uh, nonetheless rewarded with the positive feedback that I get. I'm always happy to get emails from folks. I, I'm pretty rigorous about responding to people. Uh, and, of course, uh, the archive for the show is available on prn.fm under Expanding Mind, as well as my own uh, website, technosis.com, T-E-C-H-G-N-O-S-I-S.com, which is full of all sorts of other uh, goodies and writings and talks and uh, information that I've been doing over these years. So uh, check it out, and uh, there's, a, there's a great archive to dig through. Um, this Sunday, uh, on the wonderful date of July 23rd, um, I will be uh, participating in the Raw Day, Robert Anton Wilson Day, in Santa Cruz uh, with a bunch of fun characters. So uh, if you're in the neighborhood, consider swinging by. Um, I'm really looking forward to meeting Adam Go Rightly. We've had him on the show uh, uh, talking about uh, the Discordian Society, which is, of course, a big influence on uh, Wilson in the 60s and 70s. And uh, as well, we're going to have one of my favorite magicians, the Italian magician Ferdinando Buscema, and uh, the great Are You Serious, another guest on the show and an old dear friend of mine. So I think it's going to be a rousing day. It's an afternoon of uh, talks and, uh, and panels and then an early evening uh, DJ set from Greg Wilson. Uh, so if you're, uh, again, in the neighborhood, check it out. You can go to uh, on Vino, V-E-N-N-O dot com, Raw Day. That'll get you to tickets and more information. And uh, the whole thing was set up by our guest today, uh, Daisy Campbell, someone I've been uh, wanting to meet and talk to for, uh, for quite a long time. Um, Daisy's responsible for uh, the recent Cosmic Trigger play, or Cosmic Trigger The Play. This is, of course, based on one of Wilson's uh, greatest books, probably the most important in my mind, or the, the most entertaining, strange, and even disturbing, but in a good way. Uh, and we can, we'll be talking more about that in, in a, in a moment. Um, but you know, that, you know, someone doing a play based on Robert Edson Wilson, ah, you know, I know they did it in the seventies. In fact, it was Daisy's dad, Ken Gamble, who did the uh, famous 24 hour Illuminatus, or maybe it was even longer Illuminatus performance in uh, 1976. And we'll be talking about that for sure. I've always wanted to hear more about that as well. But, you know, to be honest, I was like, well, I don't know. How could you really do it? A play, you know, theater can be so, I don't know. But I got to say, the, the, the reports I heard were uniformly excellent, from, even from theater phobes that I knew who were able to see the show when it was performed in, uh, in England in May over a 23-night run. Uh, so I don't know whether we'll, the rest of us will ever get a chance to see it again. Hopefully we can get some uh, illumination on that question as well. But uh, with no further ado, Daisy, uh, welcome to Expanding Mind. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah, it's well timed. It's uh, I'm really look forward to uh, to hanging out on on uh, on Sunday. But you know, given what we just said, you know, uh, of course, the Illuminatus trilogy was this uh, great book that that Wilson wrote with Robert Shea. Came out in 1975. Written in the late 60s, early 70s. 
filled with every uh, conspiracy, esoteric history, uh, theory of history, uh, you know, uh, hippie porn, drug riffs, Aleister Crowley, UFOs, Pulp Fictions. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just a mind bender. And it definitely bent my mind. I very much remember the period of my life when I first read Illuminatus. I was in Berkeley, so it was kind of a good uh, sort of picking up some of the psychogeographical vibes. And it definitely did a number to my head, as it's done to so many others. But it definitely did a number to your father's head. And so I've always wanted to hear a little bit more about his his uh, this play that he did. What was it like? Uh, how, you know, how old were you? How, what was your impressions of it uh, at the time? And, you know, then we can get to talking about a cosmic trigger later. OK, well, I'm going to disappoint you a bit. I wasn't even born because, in fact, um, I was born as a direct result of it because um, my even father. Better. My father was obviously the director and adapted it. And my mother played Eris, the goddess of chaos and confusion, a vital role as and Mavis, of course. And um, and so um, and they had this kind of love affair during the uh, the whole production. And uh, and I was born as a result. So Eris is actually my middle name as a result. So uh, I'm steeped in this mythology, but I can't give you a first-hand account of what that uh, Illuminatus production was like. But I can certainly kind of tell you some of its impact. And Sure, um, sure. Or even just like, I mean, it was, was it tw like 24 hours or something? No, you're, like you're a... muddling that with another of my dad's. Oh, I'm a muddler. He did, he did, he did two uh, epic productions. One of them, the first, was Illuminatus. And that was... Well, it was 11 and a half hours long when they did it in Liverpool and when they transferred it, it actually opened one of the spaces at the National Theatre, um, the Cottesloe Theatre. So when they transferred it there, I think it went down to about eight hours and then it transferred again to the Roundhouse down to about five at this point. Um, but the, um, yeah, the true aficionados say, you know, really, the, the, the magic wasn't so much there by the time they got to the Roundhouse. It was really the uh, the Liverpool production that was the uh, the extraordinary one. Uh, but the other one, the 24-hour play, was The Warp, which was kind of the UK counterculture tale. It was uh, the story of, uh, of a guy who'd lived through, you know, uh, the, it was sort of our, our kind of our Kerouac. We didn't really have the novelist, but we had this playwright, Neil Oram, who wrote his account of that whole period called The Warp, and that was the 24-hour long show. So, uh, yeah, two, two different epics. Those, those glad, glad they have that clarified. But can you tell us, like, <laughs> what was the, like, especially in Liverpool, like, what was the scene like that your father was in and what, like, you know, what was the kind of, because it had to be taking place in a world of people who are interested in this kind of thing. And, of course, 11 hours is a crazy length of time for anything. So it's clearly not your ordinary play. So what was that whole kind of milieu like? Well, what happened was, I mean, it's a really strange tale. Basically, um, Carl Jung had a dream about Liverpool and he wrote about it in his book, Memories, Dreams and Reflections on, of course, page 223. Um, and in this in this dream, there's a kind of a, a pool and, um, and, a, and a bush growing out of it. Anyway, it was of high significance to uh, Jung. He called it his most important dream. And it was clearly in his mind set in Liverpool and he realised that Liverpool was the pool of life, at least in his dream. So this poet called Peter Halligan, who lived in, um, in Liverpool, 
he uh, he got hold of the of a copy of this book and he decided to make it his mission to find the site of Jung's dream right so and i don't i i need to know more about what uh, what form this uh, this incredible quest took exactly but anyway he um he he made it his mission, and I think it was a not inconsiderable search. But basically, he discovered that it was at the crossing point of a number of of streets in Liverpool. Uh, the main one being Matthew Street, which is in fact the, where the Cavern Club is, where the Beatles first performed as well. So it's clearly a bit of a power spot, anyway. This, um, and he detected that it was um, right where this manhole cover was in the centre point of all of these um, crossing points, that this was, in fact, the site of Jung's dream and some dowsing and whatnot revealed that there had, in fact, been an under, underground stream there at that point. Um, and then he noticed that on the corner of, uh, of two of the streets, one of the buildings was, um, in fact, derelict. So he claimed it, and uh, and he sort of set up a, a kind of cafe and an art centre, and it became a real hub of the whole kind of underground culture at that time in Liverpool. And they called at the Liverpool School of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. And my dad had always had connections with Liverpool. He wasn't living there, but he's always said, you know, if you ever want to get anything done, go to Liverpool because everyone just says yes. Um, and so, um, so he had various connections. And Peter Halligan phoned him and said, I think you should come and do a, a, a great production here in the Liverpool School of, of Language, Music, Dream and Pun. And, um, and Ken said, yeah, all right. I'll, uh, I'll see. And he'd got this notion about science fiction theatre. He wanted to set up a science fiction theatre. Uh, he used to say, um, you know, when you think about it, the entire history, this is how he spoke, by the way, um, the entire history of literature is really just nothing more than people coming in and out of doors. Uh, whereas, whereas science fiction, you see, it's about everything else. So, uh, so he was very keen to set up a science fiction theatre, and he thought, "Oh, great! Well, I'll set up the science fiction theatre of Liverpool." Um, and then he went off to the sort of best alternative bookshop in Camden Town, and a book with a yellow submarine on it caught his eye for the obvious uh, Beatles connection there. And he thought, oh, right, this is interesting. I'm going to turn to a, a sort of random page of this book. And if it's any interest of any interest, I'll stick this on. And the page he turned it to was the description of Carl Jung. <laughs> so, um, so that kind of sealed the deal. And uh, so he got to work adapting it with his mate Chris Langham. And uh, they, they kind of more or less turned up with it sort of half written. And they decided to do Discordian casting. So whoever was there on the particular day would be in it um and it was more or less a squat this venue and what they managed to create was something so utterly extraordinary sounding and not only that i mean the caliber of people they attracted you know jim broadbent was in this production bill nye was in this production you know um it really was full of talent and extraordinary people um and so, yeah, they got they got to work. They re they'd rehearse it in the calf because uh, my dad always thought it was best to rehearse in public because people the actors stop sort of fussing about and just get on with it. Um, so they rehearsed it downstairs in the calf, and uh, and then it was uh, it was performed. And I think it was on the third performance they did that um, they'd managed to get Peter Hall from the National Theatre to come and see it in quite a coup. And what they did was, which I love this story, they, um, there was a guy, the guy who kind of looked after the building had built himself a little 
kind of corner out of you know a bit of um, plasterboard and whatnot he'd sort of created his own little flat in the corner of the space and Ken managed to persuade him to knock one wall down uh, out of his little flat and turn his flat into the royal box and uh, the guy was trying to sort of clear it up a bit and make it a bit kind of more presentable for, pe- for Sir Peter Hall who was now on his way and Ken said no 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 leave it bag butts and everything no no just like it is um, that will be the royal box so it was from there that uh, that Sir Peter Hall um, witnessed this uh, this legendary production and then indeed he decided it was uh, it was groundbreaking enough to actually open what was to be the kind of radical space at the National Theatre so uh, so that's, <laughs> that's yeah, what what a coup what a coup well, came to be yeah you know yeah. well here's a here's a question so you mentioned the, the kind of you know a lot of Illuminatus, a lot of this whole world we're talking about about uh, you know active brain change and and sort of uh, dancing with all of these uh, paranormal possibilities and and science fictional possibilities. Of course, synchronicity plays a very central role in this. And you already mentioned some of the synchronicities that led up to the production. But I'm wondering, in in your father's life, uh, sort of after it came out, and you know, uh, you know, in, in sort of the subsequent period of time did he experience the kind of changes that there are some of the kinds of changes that that robert wilson did after you know robert wilson he writes this you know co-writes this crazy uh, fiction and then you know as cosmic trigger is about and we'll talk about you know it started to leak into his his real life I, i'm curious whether your father reported sort of an uptick in uh, magical synchronicity or or uh, disturbing <laughs> conspiracy uh, signs in his own yeah. life uh, once he invested in, in in bringing it to life this way yes and actually the, the, what he said was uh you know really we adapted it because we wanted an excuse to live in this extraordinary book and and that's sort of what what everyone who was part of it and came to see it experienced was that they got the kind of the full immersion of the Illuminatus experience, which is, you know, as you say, hair-raising enough just reading it. So, you know, um, imagine being sort of fully immersed with the characters all around you, um, bringing it to life. It, it, it without doubt, um, the, the upswing in synchronicity. I mean, also... You know, Illuminatus is quite a dangerous book, as uh, as as Wilson says about kind of Chapel Perilous, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a, in a bit. Uh, you can either emerge agnostic or paranoid, and there was definitely, I mean, there was there was one uh, chap involved in the production, in fact, playing the man who killed God, who um, he, I mean, he became completely unhinged, believed he was he was getting messages from from Sirius, I believe, and uh, ended up sort of. Uh, attacking a bag lady he ended up in Broadmoor for for many years uh, sort of the most draconian um, kind of mental institution over here and uh, yeah so you know there were some casualties it has to be said and certainly every time anyone ever mooted the possibility of sticking Illuminatus on again my dad would go white at the prospect you know um, so, it, you know, it, it was it definitely wasn't without its kind of dark side, um, the whole experience. But I think overall, I mean, he loved Bob's work. He loved it and returned to it over and over again and instilled in me a huge love of it as well. Um, so I think he just I think more than anything, more than getting particularly heavily drawn into the conspiracy stuff himself, uh, he loved the the. Um, 
the kind of lark and caper of it, really, the kind of um, the mischievousness of the humour and the bl endless blending of, you know, not knowing what's true and what's, you know, um, what's fiction and uh, and that kind of thing. And he used those sort of techniques himself in his in his own work. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's a really key point, and it, it also sounds like something that you you really successfully achieved with uh, with the Cosmic Trigger play is that. Part of what uh, I think part of the, the reason that, that that Wilson is so important and I think even more important today where we can, you know, this is another topic, but where our, our kind of post-truth reality is taking on some of the, the features of this sort of plunge into multiple reality tunnels. And, you know, mm. it, it can be quite disturbing and unmooring and, and uh, it's easy to get trapped into conspiracies. And there's all sorts of things that are kind of, I think, more, a more generalized condition now than we would than people would have thought in the even in the seventies when it was yeah. clearly a very re, uh, relevant resonant text. But I think that it's that the humor, the personality yeah. of Raw, not just his ideas, but his his way of being in the world, the kind of quality, the sort of avuncular mischievous quality that had a little bit of a dark side, but was also very humane and and very loving and whatever that it, and that you kind of pick that up. And, and so you sort of get inoculated in a way to, to prepare you for dealing with some of the more dangerous aspects of, of the world he's describing, which in some sense has become more the world we uh, the world we live in for for better or worse. And so yeah. I think that humor is really part of what the transmission, uh, if you will, um, is about, as opposed to so much occultism and so much conspiracy theory, so much of that stuff is whatever, whether it's interesting or powerful or crazy or, you know, batty or whatever, it's off, It's so often very, very, very serious. And so there's something about that humor that's really, that's really key. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's, it's so, it's so key and it so sets him apart from so many other kind of writers in a similar terrain. I agree. And, um, and it is, you know, it's the sort of banished with laughter idea as well. That kind of, it uh, it just deflates you if you're taking it all too seriously. As he said, you know, that seriousness is not a vice I possess, which is one of my <laughs> favourite quotes. Um, and it's, you know, and, and my dad was the same. He absolutely couldn't abide seriousness. And when he told his dad that he wanted to go into theatre, his dad said, but only comedy, please. <laughs> Don't do that serious stuff. People don't like it. <laughs> so I'm so I'm curious. Your your father passed away almost a year, uh, ten years ago. And were you already talking about possibly doing? Were you already thinking about Cosmic Trigger back then, or was it something that kind of emerged uh, a, a, after his death? Yeah. So I mean. Basically, I directed uh, The Warp, the other epic that I was talking about earlier, the 24-hour one, kind of as my, um, I, you know, while all my friends were doing their A-levels, which is sort of, you know, the high school, I don't know what your equivalent is, uh, at, at kind of 18, I was instead directing the world's longest play. And um, so um, so ever since I, you know, did, a, did my own version of that, the question had been, well, when are you going to do Illuminatus? You know, and like I'd said, I, I I could see that it it was a very worrying prospect to my dad. So it certainly wasn't a thing I, you know, was that it wasn't uppermost on my mind. But then after he died, the kind of calls for it got louder. Um, and I, 
partly because of those reasons we've been talking about of, you know, I didn't want to be so much um, messing with people's minds this time. I wanted to do something a little bit more lucid that still brought through, um, you know, the, the brilliance that is that is uh, that is raw. And Cosmic Trigger is my absolute favourite book of his. I think it's the it's the absolute it's the one that just um, it's like a toolkit. It's like some kind of map for um, traversing this kind of terrain. It's it's you know it's the book that covers what you do when all your maps have run out. And um, and so that you know. And then, you know, I'd been having thoughts about, well, maybe that would be the logical next step instead of doing Illuminatus to do that kind of non-fiction type sequel. And then, of course, I can uh, I can bring in some of the Illuminatus stuff. Um, and then it occurred to me, well, of course, while he's writing it, I could also have my dad directing Illuminatus um, in, in Liverpool and kind of cross you know, come uh, cross between the two realities, if you like. So that's how we did it, is that it, it it constantly moves from Wilson's story into Illuminatus and then backstage at Liverpool um, and, uh, and, the, and, the, and the show going on. So, it's it, you know, it's a homage to, to my dad as well as Wilson and to just the kind of the power of, of Wilson's philosophy, but also the power of, of a really good slung-on show to, uh, to transform people. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I, I, I definitely gonna, I have all these questions about the show, but before we get there, I, I want to ask a little bit more about uh, what was your life like such that you would wind up spending your late teens directing this play in the context sort of of your father's work and the kind of world that that was in? I mean, that's quite audacious. Uh, and it, it suggests to me um, that your whole sort of upbringing and relationship to your father's world and the theater world and the kind of counterculture world and the sort of playful mischievousness, this the, the lark uh, the grand lark of it all was was something that really shaped you very early on, so that you were kind of of it in a way. Uh, so I'd just like to hear a little more about like what, who who were you when you took on this crazy twenty four hour countercultural play? Well, I mean, you know, I was a I was a fearless eighteen year old who thought I could do anything, and uh, you know, <laughs> I knew. And the weird thing about doing something like that, it's so intense. Uh, there's nothing like I mean, it's a car. The warp is a cast of about 40 people with about another, I don't know, 30 odd cameos rolling all the way through the night. Quite often, you're still casting later bits of it whilst the play's already started. And, um, you know, it's 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 truly an intense experience. I still don't know any better way to kind of forge uh, an incredible community of people than to stick on a kind of impossible play, really. And doing that at 18, of course, I just thought that's what life is and that's what it's always like. And it's always that intense and that fun and that full of uh, of people just pulling together, you know, not for money or anything, just because. And um, and so it was a bit of a rude awakening, I think, um, to realise, oh, oh, there's a whole other bit of life, which is just a bit mundane and and uh, and and not uh, well again another wilson quote people live in their myths they merely endure their realities and it was sort of that kind of gap opened up for me 
Um, and then, you know, I often tell the story of, of the effect that reading Illuminatus had on me. It was in combination with some other factors, let's say, but uh, I read it when I was 23. So, I, you know, I hadn't read it when I was doing the warp and stuff. Um, and it was this bizarre experience of kind of suddenly being initiated into my tribe. All of these kind of in-jokes, the 23s and the, uh, the Discordians and, you know, the eye and the triangle and all this stuff that I just was aware of. It was just in my you know it was just there in my kind of um the air that I breathed I suppose but uh, suddenly it all kind of clunked into place and I had this sort of profound feeling of like oh I've just been initiated and um and then life sort of became far too meaningful and the synchronicities just went completely out of control to the point that I sort of found myself in a a plush loony bin somewhere near Kent uh, with with uh, with rainbow knickers on my head for very important cosmic reasons and um, and I uh, <laughs> I had this moment where the, the the kind of all the people gathered round to ask me you know what are you doing here and I said oh yeah synchronicity's led me here uh, look open that magazine this girl was clutching soap opera magazine I said open that magazine at any random page and uh, the answer to why I'm here will be in there. And she opened it up, and I kid you not, it said in huge pink letters across a double-page spread, Daisy must lose some of her passion. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of... A oh my god! Startling, uh, yes, that was a sort of startling moment. Um, so, um, so that yeah, me in my in my um, in my rainbow knickers, kind of getting a bit of a of a wake up call, I guess. And I put all this stuff very firmly back in its box. And I really, I couldn't, you know, there was a whole period where I couldn't really touch any of those kind of psychedelic writings that I loved so much because they'd sort of send me back into rainbow knicker territory a bit. Um, and then suddenly one day I just could, and I could, I could just see the humor and I could just get all the wisdom from it without needing to be kind of, uh, triggered into, uh, you know, needing to go on a sort of mad bender or anything else. So, um, yeah, yep. so that was kind of my, that was, that was my, um, experience of reading Illuminatus. Yeah. Well, th- thank you for, for, for telling, for telling me that. I mean, that's, that's something that I think is really important to a- acknowledge one that, people who go in and out of these experiences and that they can be kind of harrowing and, and, and sort of losing the plot is, is, has, you know, some downsides in terms of your life, but in other ways for, at least for some people, it's kind of part of the course, like somewhere along the line, you lose the plot and then you have to kind of get out of that. And sometimes people don't, and that's a drag and sometimes they do. And, in a way, like to play with these ideas, there there is a seriousness in the sense that um, you can't be entirely frivolous about the consequences of some of these ideas and some of these memes, if you will, or, or kinds of uh, figures. And because they do clearly uh, shape uh, people's capacity or capacity tendency to begin to recognize these kinds of patterns. And the funny thing about synchronicities, in my experience, and I've I haven't wound up with rainbow knickers in my head, but I've definitely wound up <laughs> in uh, in other places uh, with other sorts of parts of, of clothing on my head. You know, I've definitely wound up in a place with a uh, uh, with a kind of FBI black suit on my head. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. But uh, uh, that you know, I mean, one of the amazing things about synchronicities is when you get 
you get a, a couple of them. They're so delicious. They're like, it's like, I think of them as like psychedelic grace. Like the, the traditional Christian idea of grace is that yeah. gratuitous presence of the Holy Spirit enters in your life and does something marvelous. It has nothing to do with anything you did. It's just purely God's will and it's grace. And this, the, the synchronicities are kind of like that. They just show up and they're like, yes, there is some deeper layer of meaning. Yes, there is some deeper connection in what can seem like a random collection of, you know, absurd nothingness. Uh, and that's wonderful. And you get a couple and then you get a few more and like, wow, something's really happening. But it's almost it's just like a fa- a fader, like a, you know, like a, a DJ going from one you know track to another. You, you move it too far. You get too many of them. It's it's a whole d- yeah. different ballgame, I and mean, you know that way madness lies, and it's yeah. so it's like this dance, you know. You, we, it's because it's not that fun to live in a meaningless life, even if in, in the end maybe it is just an absurd thing that our brains are kind of throwing patterns on. Okay, maybe, but let's go in there. Let's see what happens when we let uh, chance uh, dictate things. When we open books to random pages. When we take you know, uh, whispering suggestions from the birds or from some passing advertisement or whatever. I mean, it's a very uh, uh, playful way to be with the world. And yet it requires this strange kind of, I don't know, this requires a sort of art of not going too far, which I take it is, of course, you know, part of what you're looking at with cosmic triggers, like, what does it mean to go too far? How do you go back? What's the relationship between the magical synchronicity world and the mundane world where nonetheless, we meet the people we love and we make decisions and we do work and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I can only imagine that that was part of what, what else you were working out by moving from Illuminatus to cosmic trigger. You're also kind of going, Hey, the Illuminatus thing can take you too too far. I don't you know what what does it mean to like kind of yeah. keep these things in balance. So yes, yes, absolutely. And you you know, I realized what what I was actually doing with those rainbow knickers. I was trying to regulate um, the pronoia that I was experiencing. You know, the kind of creeping sensation that everyone everywhere is out to help you. Uh, that because that seems to be where my particular brand of madness lies. I end up thinking, oh, the whole world wants to help me put on an enormous play. Um, <laughs> So, um, so yeah, that, that, that was the, that was the rainbow knicker rationale. I think paranoids favor tinfoil, but, uh, rainbow knickers seemed the more, <laughs> the, the more apt choice for me. More pronoia. Yeah. Pronoia. Um, but yeah, synchronicities. Exactly. And that, that state of pronoia is wonderful, but like you say, it's, I think it's a trap in itself, you know, in a way, these, these kind of strata of, of consciousness, I do think it's, um, it's so seductive that you do kind of have to let it go. There comes, there was a story, do you know, you know, Clarissa Pinkola Easters, you know, uh, who wrote The Women Who Run With Wolves? Oh, yes. You know, and she tells this wonderful story that uh, that she'd been traveling and there'd been all these signs and synchronicities and it was so extraordinary and she just knew where she had to go next because there'd be some amazing sign. And she was telling her old wise grandmother about uh, about her travels and all these extraordinary synchronicities and signs and everything. And her grandmother just said, do you run around telling everyone, look at me, I'm breathing, my heart is beating, I'm breathing, you know. And I think there sort of comes a point with this stuff where you just have to kind of settle in and go, yeah, it's weird. Weird stuff happens and actually quite a lot, you know, quite there's a lot of synchronicities around. um, But you just sort of 
you breathe into them a bit more. You get a little bit less overexcited about it all, I think. And uh, and then you can kind of still conduct your life in a in a fairly organized fashion in the midst of it all. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one. I mean, that's one of the things I'm going to probably talk about on on Sunday. Is is one of the reasons I think Wilson is so helpful is that you know, in addition to staging these problems and, and encouraging you to begin to play with the possibility of synchronicity, which for a lot of readers actually ends up kind of working, and you start to learn how to. Uh, question your assumptions and and allow other possibilities to emerge in the in the midst of your life as all those things are happening he's also very grounded in a certain way i mean mm -hmm. not all the time and not in all ways but there's also a sort of sense of being of still you know a being a reason being reasonable in your body you know you're still in your empirical body you're experiencing the world you're not you know just some a uh, ghost in a, 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 a universal computer matrix or some other kind of weird myth. There's this kind of realism that he keeps yeah. coming back to. Um, and he keeps coming back to philosophically as well. If on the one hand, he's a, he's kind of skeptical about all of these large claims and there's not a real concrete sense of what real reality is. At the On the other hand, he's very invested in in thinking critically and and sort of moving as a as a free moving agent you know engaging different possibilities but always with that kind of skeptical edge which creates its own sort of groundedness so it's a it's i think a really good and and, and from what i hear you know i unfortunately didn't get to see see the play i wish i had just gone there and seen it just for the heck of it even though it's a that's a pricey ticket uh yes. That uh, that that was one of the things you were doing in in your performance as well is that there were there was a whole sort of thread that was about his his real life his mundane life his life of of having a, a family and being poor and you know being sort of alienated from the from society and da 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 and then that world kind of interacting with these more um, extraordinary possibilities. Uh, as well so I, I'd love to hear it's talk just even a little bit about how you how you represented or dealt with his sort of real life, if you will, uh, in the 70s when he was experiencing the things that he wrote about in, in Cosmic Trigger, how important that was to sort of show that side of the story. Yeah, and it's all there in Cosmic Trigger or, or, or you know, or a little bit of, of additional reading as well. But yeah, it, you know, he hints at it, but he's not, he doesn't, he's not really a man of anecdotes or anything. And it's certainly Cosmic Trigger isn't a kind of straight uh, autobiography by any stretch of the imagination. But, um, you know, certainly some of the, 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 the big key events and obviously the, the cosmic trigger sort of tragically ends with the with the death of his daughter so the, and you kind of only realize afterwards that the whole thing's been kind of shaking with this power because it's sort of all building up to this moment where he's going to um he's going to finally sort of write about luna and um and so i'd sort of try to to have a, a kind of sim try and create that sort of similar quality um so that you know quite often the conversation more of some of the more cosmic conversations he has with Luna you know the, the, the two of them share this sort of amazing uh, affinity in in the play and I'm sure you know they did in life as well and then um, and Arlen and he he doesn't write much about um, about Arlen but he hints he hints at a kind of extraordinary tantric experience with with her this is his wife uh, so we made this kind of um, big set piece in the middle of act two huge sort of tantric sequence where he ends up making love with a serious alien 
and, <laughs> and um, I mean, it's, it was great. We had to go and learn how to kind of switch people around under beds and uh, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so, um, so you know, so we got the story of, um, and I think that's why, in a way, it needed to have that element of the um, the, the vignettes, if you like, from Illuminatus that are being kind of that are sort of uh, throughout it, because in a way, that's his. That's his imagination, you know, at, at large, and that really gives you a chance to kind of see that the colour of what's going on. And then, you know, meanwhile, yeah, he, you know, in this kind of great um, leap of confidence and faith, he gives up his job at Playboy, which sounds like it was a pretty cushy job. Um, and and that, of course, was where he was writing Illuminatus with his colleague, Bob Shea, who, you know, was to become a great friend, of course. And uh, so there's, you know, it sort of starts with, um, with the letters arriving. I mean, this this act this story came from John Thompson, who did all that brilliant artwork for Cosmic Trigger, and he said that what actually happened was they put out a call for startling news stories that were being suppressed by the mainstream media. This is Playboy, and this was Wilson's idea. And then they got inundated in the most the most insane amount of letters about you know every conspiracy theory you can possibly imagine, which gave Wilson this extraordinary insight into kind of the state of paranoia in you know in america at that time at least with the playboy readers i suppose and um and so he was he he, he that was where this idea they were working on the on the letters page they were doing the kind of playboy response to the letters but uh inspired or at least that's the that's the artistic license i've taken is that it very much inspired by those letters that they were receiving uh him and bob uh, decided to um, to try and incorporate every single one of those conspiracies and more into uh, into their novel Illuminatus. Uh, so that's kind of where we we begin the the, the telling with them and uh, and then meet his wife uh, for his first just before his first ever acid trip again slight artistic license he had taken peyote before i don't think it was timothy leary who actually gave him the acid that he took for his first acid trip but you know there's certain um there's certain little kind of um like bits of license that one needs to take and he actually he he constantly breaks the fourth wall so at the beginning of the second act he comes on he says no are you diehard fans all getting het up about all the uh, historical inaccuracies <laughs> that kind of Good. deals that kind of deals with all those um problems in one first week in the second interval he actually um challenges everyone to try and get through the whole 23 minute interval without using the word i and they have to bite themselves on their thumb really hard if they if they fail uh, so that's that was hilarious to hang out in the bar at that interval while everyone's desperately struggling to hold a conversation without <laughs> saying the word i because uh, that was again one of his experiments uh, and we've got alistair crowley is a kind of accordion playing specter who just sort of sings his uh, his uh, great maxims kind of wandering through and around and then eris herself constantly interrupting uh, proceedings and um you know demanding to turn the whole thing into a panto and getting the audience up to enact you know the uh, the mount olympus and her mythology and an enormous golden apple suddenly uh, flies in from god knows where and uh, so you know it's um, it's it's got many layers it never ever takes itself too seriously you constantly think oh this is the sort of show it is is it and then it goes no it's not that sort of show and then now let's have a song in fact let's have a song in prison with timothy leary singing the eighth circuit uh, consciousness model 
<laughs> no, it sounds so delicious. I, I, oh, and so, uh, of course, I have to ask, I, I can only assume that at some point when you were thinking about, since we're going to be in Santa Cruz uh, uh, this weekend, and Santa Cruz is, of course, where, where Bob uh, lived the last part uh, of his life, and, you know, he was very associated with uh, with Northern California for, for much of his life. Um, I can only assume that you had at least had, had tried initially to perhaps bring the production uh, out here. Was that was that ever part of the Absolutely. part of the you know, Yeah, because the, the whole, when we first, we did it first in 2014, quite a short run, but uh, we did it in Liverpool. It had to be Liverpool. Um, and, then, and then London, and we did about seven shows back in 2014. And um, we funded those through a crowdfund. And it was really because the, the very last scene of the play is, um, I don't know if you recall, but when he was uh, dying, there was, um, I think it was Douglas Rushkoff, in fact, sent out. It um, was Rushkoff, yeah. Yeah, I think it was. And he sent out a message, basically, saying you know if if robert anton wilson changed your life send him 23 dollars now he can't you know he, he couldn't afford his medical bills he couldn't um afford to stay in his home he just wanted to die in his own home and you know the response was just extraordinary of these you know checks for 23 dollars just arriving through his door uh constantly and so that's where the play ends is with with you know, with all those letters arriving. And um, and so I was thinking about how to fund it, and it took my, my partner, Greg, to say, well, the clue's in the last scene, surely. And I went, oh, yeah, just, yeah, crowdfund, £23 or $23 or whatever, you, you know, or 23p, whatever you can afford. And it was just amazing. Before we even managed to get the proper official, um, you know, Indiegogo campaign set up, people were just sending, you know, it was just, I was being sent cash and sent checks, like, um, prior to it even becoming official. It was just amazing. And that really let us know that this was a thing people wanted. But a load of that funding was coming from the States, which was so touching. You know, they knew it was going to be a, a production in the UK, but uh, nonetheless, people felt moved to, to help fund this thing. And um, I think there was a period where there was a real anxiety amongst Rob Anton Wilson fans that he was kind of going to be forgotten. You know, he wasn't going to be remembered. And um, and so I think it was partly that. And just you know, whenever you meet someone whose whose life was changed by Rob Anton Wilson, and you tell them they're doing a play, they will basically drop everything and come and do anything. Uh, it's just been amazing like that's been the experience here so in answer to your question are we trying to get it over to santa cruz ever since then we've been we've sort of known we've got to try and um and honor the fact that we've got so much support from people in the states by trying to get it over there and our difficulty is is that the whole thing has been built on this incredible kind of grassroots upswelling of just enthusiasm and you know and people just coming together and making it happen and you know, as soon as you introduce things like visas and, uh, you know, cost of flights and all that, you, it's much, much harder to sort of keep them, you know, keep the enthusiasm up and going. Um, and also trying to make things happen when you, you haven't met the people you're dealing with face to face and uh, and all the rest of it. So in the end, um, I just said, look, I'm going to be in, in Santa Cruz on uh, on the 23rd of July. And, you know, we shall see uh, if there is, you know, sufficient upswell uh, to really make this happen. So, so well, yeah, so frankly, it sounds to me like our, our, the 
American raw fans, our, our, our goal is to, is to seduce you into being able to come out here enough uh, to <laughs> fall in love with the place so that you can, you know, because you can draw, if you get the, if you get local enthusiasm going, then it sort of obviates some of the, the problems of bringing over Absolutely the, the, the cast. You know, and I, on a, on a practical level, I think, you know, if we could just get our sort of leading man, leading lady over, there's, they're the, you know, Arlen and Bob are kind of the spine of the piece. And then, you know, all the other madness swirls around them. And, uh, you know, and a lot of, the, you know, when we were seriously talking about it, a lot of the actors were like, I just pay for myself. I don't care. I'm coming. You know, so it's not, it, it's, it's going to, I think it will happen. I think it will, I think it will happen. It just, we, you know, we need to start kind of connecting up those uh those dots a little bit more yeah. and, you know and i well, think people sort of assume especially when they're not in theater like well shows come here all the time and it's you know it's like but we're not the west end we're just no 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 yeah no i i i was part of a very similar kind of thing and we uh some friends and i did a uh a, a rock opera about Burning Man, it was kind of a cross between uh, Rocky Horror, Hair, and uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, and uh, and you know, and it was and it was ended up being like the 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 largest. We did a number of versions of it, but the largest one had like forty people in the cast and it was completely absurd and there's no way we would ever make any money and we, I, I can't believe it happened and you know it's just like it and it was just like you know this crazy life-changing like nothing you know but it was very discordian and wacky and didn't really have it and it was just like it, it was very illuminating though like looking at the hard reality of what does it mean to like put shows on over time and make them sustainable it's like much 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 harder than even like most broadway show you know people who are trying to get to broadway or whatever i mean it's a it's a tough game especially if you have a bunch of people in it which is what you want if you have these kinds of stories that are so collective and they're about all of these different yeah. perspectives and things undermining each other you know you need a lot of people you need that sense of like a whole community there and then it, that makes it even 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 oh, well, that's what makes it feel so immersive and you know every more or less every actor in it is part of this whole legacy you know the woman playing uh, playing uh, eris was in the original production of illuminatus you know um the guy playing robert anton wilson was the lead in the 24-hour play that i mentioned you know so it's it is you know we're bringing our own sort of strong theatrical legacy and community to 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 it all as well so um yeah that's you know like you say it's a big part of it and um and no no uncommodifiable art yeah that seems to be the only kind i know how to do yeah yeah well i mean it's an interesting thing about him because you know uh you mentioned before about you know wilson fans being like is he going to be be forgotten and i think he's in a very interesting place right now because you know, as we've seen, like a, a lot of the counterculture and uh, esotericism, conspiracy theory, like a lot of these things that used to be pretty marginal aren't so marginal anymore. You know, as as reality starts to melt down, as capitalism looks for newer sources of like cultural commodities you know like all of this stuff becomes kind of available you know with the the return to psychedelic research and the upsurge mm -hmm. in yoga and meditation like there's just kind of a way in which we're in a like reality has more room for altered states and and for weirdness frankly but at the same time wilson hasn't been rediscovered yet on that scale he's sort of it's still like it's like kind of cruising along but mm -hmm. to my mind he's actually he's more important than 
let's say, a later figure like Terrence McKenna or even Leary in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like he's there's something about the way in which he deals, especially with conspiracy theory, especially with the kind of dark side of politics. I mean, you read through his, you know, one of the things I, was, I forget about him because you, you, it's so easy to talk about in terms of science fiction and serious and crazy conspiracy theories. It's like yeah. the, the dude knew his history, too. And he was very aware that, you know, history is a is a grim tale of of elites, you know, manipulating and, and harassing everybody else. And, you know, he, he had no illusions about what actual human history was like. So in a way, his attitude, I think, is more even resonant and appropriate for people to wrestle with today than a lot of other kind of countercultural ideas or, or mystical freak ideas and stuff like that. So, you know, I'm kind of curious, like when after, you know, beyond the faithful, what sort of yeah. uh, response did Cosmic Trigger stir up, of, you know, among larger theater goers or the, you know, London well, Society or whatever? This ordinary thing because um, we were asking ourselves exactly the same question. That first one we did in 2014, we were, you know, more or less preaching to the choir and it was a joyous thing and, you know, inspired so much, uh, so much kind of came out of that, that first production, uh, just people just like, you know, finding water in the desert. Like, I thought I was the only Discordian left. I thought I was the only person who could remember, but, you know, and just to, to realise, no, look, we're all out there and bring them all together. So that had its own kind of joyous quality. But, yeah, we were anxious about how it was going to go down with um, with the sort of larger audience that we were now reaching out to. It went down great. I mean, people would were just constantly saying, I'd never heard of him, um, you know, I, 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 but they got it, you know, they completely got it. And people were coming back two or three times, a bit like when you first read Wilson. That feeling, you know, that feeling, I, I had it so strongly after I read Cosmic Trigger. As soon as I finished it, I thought, that didn't, that doesn't exist, that book. I don't think that, that can't exist, can it? Is that what I really just read? And I think people had a really similar reaction who were being exposed to uh, to Wilson for the first time to the play. They'd sort of come out like, did I, was it, did, really? <laughs> <laughs> and almost have to come back and just sort of check what they'd seen. Um, but uh, it, it, it was people and what was interesting people took all different things a lot of people took away the kind of belief is the death of intelligence uh idea of um you know just that as soon as you believe something you're gonna you stop sort of thinking really in a sense you've kind of thought you've crystallized your uh, your opinion about something and that's it you're not going to revisit it now uh so that i think was great people loved the whole um you know leary and wilson's eight circuit model of consciousness it might have had something to do with um having a f- song and dance number of people in their orange jumpsuits um <laughs> it may have may have uh, had a had a impact on that but um no it was it, it it translated remarkably well and even you know we got the telegraph and the guardian and these rather sort of straight newspapers came and they got it you know and people really got uh, what was interesting was that it wasn't nearly as relevant when we did it in 2014. We weren't yet in the kind of alternative fact, post-truth reality. And no one was, you know, Trump hadn't been elected and all the rest of it. Brexit hadn't happened. And so, um, you know, so then to sort of uh, to be bringing it back in 2017, where suddenly it felt really kind of very relevant and quite an important toolkit um, to uh, to deal with, you know, a sort of post-truth reality really 
Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's quite relevant. And, and even when you get into uh, to Wilson's politics, which is another whole story, I mean, he was, you know, in many ways a, a, a real tried and true uh, libertarian, right-wing yeah. anarchist, whatever you want to call it. And, um, and but what's fascinating is also, I mean, it's like he's simultaneously, you know, and so you can you can look a lot of the the post-truth reality, the whole alt-right in the United States, especially, um, is actually very discordian in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and they're they're using the same kind of awareness of symbols, the same sense of pranking and whatever. And you realize that 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 those methods, that those um, truths about the way reality can be constructed, are not linked to particular moral values. They could be linked to a lot of different kinds of moral values. And one of the interesting things about Wilson is the way in which was that even though he was a libertarian and even a kind of techno-libertarian in some ways, yeah. his his actual sort of ethics and relationship to people and relationship particularly to people who were who, you know, to to poverty, to people, the fact that there's a lot of people who are don't aren't winners. It was totally different than the other than the kind of main the, the the main force of libertarianism that we have now, at least in 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 America and California, where it's like super, you know, it's like leave them in the dust. Who cares about those people? No social services. Let's just break out and we'll create our own technological futures. We don't need to, this heavy this dead weight of everybody else. But Wilson wasn't like that at all. So he's this sort of interesting mix. Of, he is a really interesting, you mix. know. Yeah, he doesn't lose his heart and his social conscience ever, and he doesn't ever lose his roots. And 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 also, I think one of the, the points I tried to make in the play is I sort of contrast him somewhat to uh, to Leary and to Kerry Thornley, who was one of the founders of Discordianism, who both, you know, in their own ways, kind of are the victims of their own philosophies. And um, and you know, particularly like to take Leary, you know his kids wouldn't talk to him, you know, he, 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 he didn't, his own personal life was quite a mess. Whereas Wilson, um, had this, you know, amazing, incredibly loving marriage, um, that, uh, you, you know, and he just, like you say, he seemed in his life to make the right choice, to make the loving choice, um, you know, despite his kind of, um, yes, his, I, he said an interesting quote, which I think kind of, helps to get that sense of what a, a kind of bridger he was, was, um, you know, the left think that all the problems in the world are down to big business and the right think all the problems in the world are down to government. They're both right. <laughs> and um, I think that sort of, you know, kind of sums up in some ways where he kind of stood. Yeah, yeah, it's that it's that 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 human element that's really keeps you know keeps coming back to him. And even at the the one time I met him, at, uh, I mean, I'd seen him give talks and sort of said hi to him at parties or whatever. But when we went, I went by his apartment uh, in Santa Cruz when he was to do the Wednesday nights. He'd read uh, you know a passage from Finnegan's Wake and then wow. you know blow us all away with how much he could make out of this this like moderate gobbledygook. And the, but it wasn't so much just that that his performance. But just the surrounding the people around him and the, the the wonderful ladies who were there from the local cannabis activism community and people who were supporting him when he was, you know, frail at this point, not not quite in the dying phase yet, but it wasn't that far off. And it was just there was just an, a sense of that, that of his, his enjoyment of people in that way that was really a. Very different than if someone like Leary, who's always pulling a move on you or like playing and putting on a mask and, and stuff yes. like that. Yes, yes. 
Well, I, I mean, uh, well, we'll, we'll got a couple of any, any special uh, uh, surprises on on Sunday uh, for in, in, in Santa Cruz. Well, what, I mean, I, I think it's, I'm so excited myself. You know, I've kind of um, managed to get a lineup together of, of all the people I wanted to meet, more or less, and uh, and get them all on stage together. And you know, there's there's still a few tickets available. So I think you know anyone out there who uh, whose life was in any way impacted by Robert Anton Wilson should probably make a a good effort to be there on Sunday. It may be the start of uh, maybe the start of something. Um, I would like to think, and um, and certainly just a great opportunity to celebrate a great man. And also, we should say why um, why the twenty third of July, um, because um, well, this was the day that he um, that he claims he met. Maybe made contact with uh, with Sirius in Cosmic Trigger. It's the the start of the dog days, and um, and it's also the day that the uh, the mayor of Santa Cruz, I think the mayor who, who was ten years ago, uh, declared twenty um, third of July Robert Anton Wilson Day, and so uh, so it seems like a, a particularly auspicious and apt day for uh, for us to be to be meeting. And Absolutely, and it's ten years since his death as well. So it's um, in, a good time for a raw pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. I mean, it's also for me. I think it's really key. Those, those, all, oh, just like what we started off talking about Liverpool and the kind of psychogeography that that helps set set up um, the the performance of Illuminatus. That at the in the same way, I think that places do have a certain kind of memory. They 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 have something to say as well towards these kinds of gatherings. So I think having this in, in Santa Cruz uh, is a really, you know, it's, it's another part of the tale. And another reason I think ultimately Cosmic Trigger will have to come to California. <laughs> you see the push is on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. I'm feeling it. I'm feeling it. Definitely. Well, I mean, it's great. Sunday will be a great way to sort of mass forces and see what we can come up with. It might be, uh, might be easier than we think. Exactly. Yes, we uh, we just we just need to gather the grassroots up, and we'll be away. It will be great. Yeah, we'll gather gather the grassroots and smoke them. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, all right, Daisy. Well, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing you on Sunday. Thanks so much for uh, joining us on Expanding Mind. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Eric. Great. That was uh, Daisy Campbell. Uh, you can find out more about uh, uh, the uh, Cosmic Trigger Play at CosmicTriggerPlay.com, and uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get a chance to see it at some point. Uh, so until next week, keep your minds open. <laughs>